Hey folks, welcome back to the next episode of the Jedi Council Podcast. We really like to explore mental health in your favorite fictional characters. This is your your summertime graduate student friend, Brandon Saxton. And your can't come up with a quick clever <laughs> title, Professor Katie Gordon. Not a great title. <laughs> well, no title at all, right? <laughs> Some of us aren't as good at it naturally. I think for the entire week ahead of time to make sure I have one. So oh, okay. that's my secret. How okay. are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. And I'm excited because we have another special guest. We do. To close off our Myths mini-series that turned into more of like its own actual series at mm-hmm. this point. Uh, Dr. Keith Donahue. Hi, Keith. Hi. Thanks for being on the show with us today. Well, thanks for inviting me. Oh, well, we're happy to have you. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about substance abuse myths. Mm-hmm. What, what Should we start maybe by having Keith tell us a little bit about who he is? Yep. Yeah, that might maybe be a good Your place. educational so, background and what you teach. Uh, my name's Keith Donahue. Uh, I'm a uh, friend of Brandon's. I am a spouse of Katie's. <laughs> and uh, I'm a clinical psychologist like uh, these two. And I teach at NDSU. Uh, North Dakota State University. I have a background in uh, laboratory research with alcohol, and I also have some clinical training in the treatment of uh, of substance use disorders. So when I was on my internship, for instance, I worked with folks who had heroin addictions. Um, so I, I think of myself as kind of a generalist, but maybe someone who's who's been curious for many years about drugs and alcohol. Um, I teach a class on it to undergraduates here at NDSU. So over the years, I've tried to keep up with uh, news and with research in that area. And I can attest the fact that you do keep up with the news as well as uh, being well-versed in the history. So that's why we're happy to have you as our special guest, because you're one of the most knowledgeable people I've met on drugs and alcohol. And I can attest to that, too. The class you teach on drug use was one of the first classes I took at NDSU several years ago, actually. Yeah, I, that was a that was a long time ago, <laughs> but I do remember it. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, my first year after transferring here, that was one of the first classes and probably a, a strong... Uh, a reason why I switched my major from pre-med to psychology. So well, that, that's flattering. I, I blame you, you for, for everything <laughs> that happened since. Keith. Maybe that's not so flattering. Oh, <laughs> just a, there's a great burden of responsibility now. <laughs> uh, so let's go ahead and just dive right in on this. So we didn't tweet out any questions for this one, no. which was I think just a kind of as we kind of rushed through this and we've kind of been catching up on all these ideas that mm-hmm. we had. So. So we'll just have to come up with our own myths this time and not answer any Twitter <laughs> I questions. thought about it this morning and I was like, it might be too late by yeah. then. So hopefully we'll capture the most common ones. But if you think of others, you can tweet them at us and we can consult with Keith. And actually, I think it's likely that we'll do another episode on substance use disorders. And oh, I'm sure it's a very up, yeah. prevalent depiction in fictional characters, which mm-hmm. of course is a major focus of ours. So should we start things off? What's the first myth that we want to start with today? Well, gosh, we, we've talked about a few things. Um, maybe the first uh, myth to address is just the idea of becoming hooked on drugs. And, and this is a myth that probably many of us have heard or at least heard that phrase. I, I can certainly think of as a, as a young person attending uh, like health class in, in high school or junior high or, or um or kind of like pep rallies and people talking about mm-hmm. like the, the danger of getting hooked on drugs. And this is something that I think shows up in movies and TV shows. A, a character will try a drug once and almost immediately become um, enslaved to the use of that drug. Uh, and to be clear, this type of experience can happen to some people. And when it does, it's, of course, really troubling. Uh, but the idea is a myth in the sense that it doesn't seem to happen to most people who use drugs. And I think it presents an overly simplistic view of the different factors that lead people into habits and patterns of drug use. Uh, so, yeah. what, do you mind if I, what are some risk factors that make people in the category that are more likely to become hooked on drugs once they try it? Well, I'm, I'm sure you... I think you guys have talked about the biopsychosocial model before it, with reference to other uh, mental health issues. And, and that's kind of the framework that, that I use and many people use to think about substance use problems, you know, biological factors, psychological factors, and social factors. 
And uh, that, that framework or that model is useful because it's a reminder of how complex uh, drug use, like many other behaviors, can be. Biological factors include things like genetic risk for substance use. And if we look across groups of users, whether it's nicotine users or alcohol users, cocaine users, um, there is evidence that those folks have a genetic risk to uh, be more inclined to use drugs as compared to other folks. Um, there's an area of study called behavioral genetics, which uses comparisons of twins who are genetically identical to each other, identical twins, and twins who are only half genetically related to each other, fraternal twins, and uses that as a methodology to estimate the variability in drug use that can be ascribed to genes as compared to environment. Um, and those types of studies suggest that roughly half of the variability in substance use disorders can be related to genetic factors. So we don't necessarily know which genetic factors, you know, which genes in particular might lead someone to become a cocaine user. But we know that when we look at a group of cocaine users, a population of folks who use this drug, that for most of them, it's reasonable to think that genes played a role. So there are genetic factors that we uh, suspect exist. Um, does that mean, if you don't mind me asking, does that mean that one way you might be able to know if you're at higher risk for being in that group of people that gets hooked to drugs is if there's a family history of, say, alcohol dependence or oh, something? Oh, sure. Uh, that, that's a really good point. I, I probably should have started there. I mean, people have recognized since uh, since ancient times, literally, that that uh, patterns of drug use flow in families. So people who tend to have problems drinking too much or tend to uh, use opiates too much, those folks uh, tend to exist in families. And, and there are other families where those types of problems are relatively rare. Uh, what's newer now in the 20th and 21st century is our ability to estimate mathematically the, the portion of that risk that can be ascribed to genes as compared to environmental factors. And also, more recently, some evidence to look at which genes in particular uh, convey that risk. And that's tricky because we haven't yet found, uh, despite a lot of looking, that there are very specific genes that make you, you know, a cocaine addict, or, or, or I shouldn't say addict, but someone who's, who's at risk for developing cocaine addiction or, or nicotine addiction. There are, some, there are some likely candidates, but it's not as simple as, well, you have this gene, you're necessarily and definitely going to become addicted. You don't. You're necessarily safe from addiction. But there do seem to be genetic factors. Okay. What are some of the environmental factors that increase risk for developing a problem with substance use? Uh, the big thing that seems to be involved in, in terms of environmental factors are uh, peer groups, especially non-family peer groups. Uh, and this may remind people of things they've heard about peer pressure or like the types of friends you hang out with at school. Um, we, like, as with many behaviors, humans tend to look at the people around them, their friends, the people they hang out with, for cues as to what types of behaviors are appropriate. You know, these norms that people in social psychology and sociology talk about. And there's plenty of evidence to suggest that the norms of your peer group around substance use will tend to influence your behavior. Now, what's a little tricky is people tend to associate with friends in part based on interests. So it's not entirely clear that, you know, if you hang out with friends who all smoke marijuana, is it you chose to hang out with them because you too like marijuana? Or is it that you chose to hang out with them and over time you begin to copy their behavior? And it's, it's a little bit difficult to say precisely, but it does seem to be clear that having friends who use drugs tends to be associated with an increased likelihood that you will use drugs. Having friends who do not use drugs, opposite story. And in fact, that's part of the reason why many forms of drug treatment involve developing peer groups, like support groups, of people who are dedicated to not using drugs or to using drugs in a kind of a careful and controlled way, essentially constructing another peer group uh, that will be more supportive of those treatment goals than the type of peer group that users often tend to have uh, on their own. Okay, so maybe I'll just sum up that one before going to another myth and correct me if I'm wrong. So basically, the myth is that Everyone who tries drugs is, or most people are going to get hooked to them. That's not true. A lot of people will try or use drugs at some point um, that do not develop a kind of dependence from it within the group that does is at risk, which we should take seriously, right? We're not saying don't take it seriously. We're just saying that it's not um, 
as simple as, like you said, some of the messaging around that anyone who tries it is going to have a huge problem. Within that group, the people who are most at risk might have some genetic factors linked to their family and environmental factors, including peers. And I know that's kind of just the surface level of that, but is that fairly accurate? Yeah, it is. It's it's an interesting point um, because even if we look at uh, drugs which are by most ways of thinking, very addictive, things like heroin or methamphetamine, the overwhelming majority of people who try these drugs don't become addicted in the sense that they develop long and uh, very persistent patterns of use. Now, to be clear, even if you don't become addicted to heroin, you can have all sorts of problems with that drug. You could overdose on it. You could become involved in illegal activities to get it. You could get very sick from using contaminated sources. So um, there are all sorts of bad things to have that could happen. And, and when I make this point in class, I always try to underline very carefully that uh, addiction is not the only negative outcome that can be associated with drug use. Um, however, it's one that's often... Um, emphasized, I think for understandable reasons, because it seems frightening. And, and there clearly are cases of folks who have family members or friends who do become addicted or dependent on drugs. And those are really sad and troubling cases. So it makes sense that we emphasize this risk. But I sometimes think that we emphasize it to an almost ludicrous extent. And that's problematic in the sense that many young people, and not just young people, but you know, the typical person who begins using drugs might begin in their late teens or early 20s, tries a drug like marijuana or alcohol or cocaine and doesn't become addicted and then thinks, oh gosh, you know, all this stuff I've been told about drugs, it's all lies. Um, that's not entirely true, but that, that sort of reaction response, I think is in part because of the way we've messaged the risk of drug use, really emphasizing the, gosh, you smoke one uh, joint and you're instantly addicted or you, you use cocaine once and you're hooked for life. It could happen. It probably won't. There'll be other negative things that could happen as well, but we need to be a little bit more balanced in our thinking. Thank you. Yeah, so another myth, and I think this is one that, uh, correct me if you guys think I'm wrong, but this is one that you kind of see a lot in popular culture sort of depictions, I think, is the idea of sort of hitting rock bottom. I think that's, you see that in some movies mm -hmm. and shows about addiction unless i'm wrong I, i'm not coming up with any good concrete examples mm, but isn't in breaking bad isn't there isn't the point where jane dies oh. where jesse seeks treatment for meth that uh i, I do think that's right yeah i think th if that i'm remembering that, that ring correctly a bell, yeah. <laughs> and i remember in the older movie 28 days with sandra bullock she has an alcohol problem and basically ruins her sister's wedding and that's kind of her rock bottom and when she okay. seeks treatment <laughs> Yeah, this is a, an idea that I think is kicks around in the culture. It shows up in TVs and, and movies like you're describing. Um, it, it emerges somewhat from the writing around the 12-step program, Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and I can't quote uh, from the precise sources here, but there is this idea within that movement that you hit rock bottom and that's kind of an inflection point, And then you make a change and, and you start living without alcohol or without other drugs. Um, I think it's it's one of those tricky points because it's probably truthful for people who have had that experience. Like it's true if it's true for you. If you had a really bad experience with drugs or alcohol and you made a change, that's fantastic. And it maybe in retrospect looks like that was your rock bottom. What's uh, mythological about this idea is I think it can be confusing to people who are in the process of making a change or are trying to decide if they need to make a change. You know, in my own uh, clinical experience, I've had clients who've talked about this saying, gosh, I'm not sure I've hit rock bottom or I tried to stop using cocaine, but then I relapsed. Maybe I didn't hit my rock bottom. And I, I think it can just add extra unnecessary kind of speculation to what's already a challenging um, process. That is the process of changing from using drugs in a relatively uncontrolled and dangerous way to using them in a controlled way or even abstaining from using them. Um, it's it's maybe in that case problematic. Uh, what we see when, with people who do make that change is it's not often the case that there's this one bad thing in their life and then they shift, they change, and life proceeds in a better direction. It's rather uh, a pattern of stumbling, getting up, stumbling again, getting up, you know, using, abstaining, relapsing into use again that can proceed for months or even years of time, um, especially without good treatment. Uh, not so much hitting one rock bottom, and then the the story really changes. I I feel like that's helpful to know because I think that 
that rock bottom idea does get into people's minds in the public. I mean, it certainly got, I thought about that from seeing that presented in movies and things like that. And then we might have unrealistic expectations about what the journey means, that you have such a terrible experience. And like you said, then it's complete, you know, healing from that point. Or if it's not, that means they didn't really hit rock bottom low enough yet or something, both of which I could see being unhelpful. Yeah. And again, to be clear, this is the type of thing that for some people probably mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense. And I'm, I'm not trying to um, to invalidate that experience. I, I've talked to people, I'm friends with people who will describe having that one really bad chapter in their life that caused them to change. And again, to those folks, you know, I applaud them, good for them, and, and keep up the hard work of maintaining a safer way of being around drugs. Uh, it can just be challenging for people who are in that process. And I think it's also maybe part of a larger kind of, uh, of uh, if not a myth, just a mistaken sense of what drug dependence is, which is that it's this disorder that can be fixed or cured like some illnesses can be cured. We think of it incorrectly as kind of an acute disorder, like you might have uh, the flu and then you you overcome it, or you might have a a stomach bug and you take uh, antibiotics and then you're cured. It it is substance use. It it is much more like something like diabetes, which is tending, it tends to be a chronic condition that is managed over time and it hopefully gets better with proper treatment, but there'll be times when it gets worse. It doesn't have that kind of inflection point. So for most people, it's kind of an up and down process that hopefully over time is stable and maybe trends upwards or into a more healthy direction. But um, I think what happens in movies and TV shows is it's hard to write stories about that process if you're trying to tell some larger story. You know, if, you're, if your movie is about a guy or a girl who has a drug use problem, then maybe you can depict fairly accurately those ups and downs. But if your story is about a superhero who's got a job to do and also tends to drink too much, it's it's probably narratively convenient to describe this really bad epoch or period they had with their drug use, and then they got back on track, and then they didn't really have problems with alcohol afterwards. Um, again, that's probably not accurate for most people in the real world. So think, speaking of superheroes, someone that comes to mind as having, maybe that's an exception to this, is Jessica Jones, right? She kind of has she's a superhero, but she has this ongoing drinking problem that seems to be related to PTSD. How realistic do you feel that presentation was? There are things I really liked about that depiction. Um, one, I, I, well, it's, you know, it's a sad depiction. So in a sense, I didn't like seeing the character suffer, but I thought it was, I appreciated the writer's attempts to show someone who was self-medicating with alcohol for uh, post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms, because unfortunately we do see that with people who have post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, not, not all folks, but many folks who do uh, in an effort to calm their feelings of agitation or help them sleep better if they're having disrupted sleep uh, will use alcohol, a, a not very effective tool for treating those problems over the long run. And so I think you, I liked seeing that in Jessica Jones. I, I felt like it made sense. It wasn't Uh, I think the drinking that is wasn't done in just sort of a gratuitous way to make her seem sort of badass and tough, which you sometimes see in movies and TV shows like this guy just drinks a lot to prove that he's tough. It's it's kind of a trope to indicate his sort of rough lifestyle. Um, This seemed more um, nuanced. The thing that I I will say I didn't like as much about uh, about that depiction, Jessica Jones, is that there wasn't as much of a depiction of the aftermath of her heavy drinking. Um, there are some some parts of this series where in the morning she's obviously a bit hungover, but she still seems able to get up and move on and solve mm-hmm. problems and overcome her nemesis. And maybe that's because she has superpowers, like a super uh, metabolic liver. Mm-hmm. But I think if you looked at most uh, non-superhero people, um, over time, heavy drinking, like most heavy drug use, is associated with really bad functioning. Um, there's a bit of a, a maybe a mini myth here of the functional alcoholic. I mean, that's an idea you hear. I think you see this sometimes in TV shows or movies. The idea of someone who can drink heavily or do drugs heavily, but still get up and, and function. Um, I'm sure there are maybe a few folks out there who can do that, but most people really, really can't. And so we don't see in Jessica Jones... Uh, scenes of her unable to pursue her case because she's throwing up all the time or she has the shakes 
or any of the other symptoms that are associated with a heavy alcohol use. We don't see her having memory blackouts. At least I don't think. Not that um, I can think of. Uh, and maybe, but not... Like alcohol-related memory blackouts? Um, it's a bit tricky, because I think some mm-hmm. of our stuff is trauma-related, yeah, which is yeah. maybe somewhat distinct. So there, there may be a little bit of some missed opportunities there, but again, I can appreciate that from the writer's perspective, they need to keep a story moving forward, and, and sort of a whole episode devoted to Jessica throwing up in her bathroom is not going to be as compelling <laughs> as uh, uh, an episode where she gets up and pursues... Kilgrave, mm-hmm. or, you know, her, her nemesis, or she's hunting down, you know, the leads in her, her detective story. So I, and, I understand that. And Jessica, that. fun fact, played Jane, right? In right. Breaking Bad. She the same was actress. really good in that, yeah. Yeah, very, very good performance. I was I just think. having a vision of the fictional characters we depicted. I was like, yeah. that's the same one we just talked about briefly. Um, so maybe to sum up that one, which I think you, you already did, but basically it's not... Um, we could talk about some offshooting myths too, but basically it's not as clear as like someone hits rock bottom and that's the beginning of how they change. And while some people have that experience, people have different ways of dealing with recovery and addiction. So it's oversimplified to put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I, I, um, it depends on, I don't know if Brandon will remember this from back when I taught the class, but I think in, in when I teach my drug and alcohol class, I, I sometimes use a quote that I think comes from Einstein where he says, things should be made as simple as possible, but not simpler. And I think that's a, it's a useful quote to remember with respect to drugs because we often oversimplify our thinking about drugs and drugs are complicated drug use behaviors are, are complicated and that that the rock bottom idea is maybe an oversimplification of what's for most people a very complicated process of recovery all right well kind of continuing the line of misrelated treatment i have the sense that there and we talked about them ahead of time so it's not just my sense but also pre-established myth that there's a uh, misrelated to rehab and this idea that and I think this might be one that sort of we can attribute a little bit to um, media as well, that you, if you're struggling with drug use or, or something related to that, you go to rehab and then uh, you're good to go after that and you just kind of carry on. And uh, that's just not quite the reality from what I understand. And I'm sure you'll tell us more about. Well, again, it, this may be the reality for some folks, but, but that image of the person who has a drug use problem and then they check into some sort of residential setting, you know, a, a clinic, you know, in South Florida or in California or, or wherever. And after 12 days or 21 days, or 28 days, whatever, they come out and they're cured. Um, that's not accurate for the way most people experience the recovery process. Um, a well-run um, uh, rehab, rehab clinic will do things like provide medications that will help ease withdrawal symptoms, which may accompany uh, stopping drug use. So if you're a heavy drinker and you stop drinking suddenly, you can experience all sorts of really unpleasant and even life-threatening withdrawal symptoms, um, you know, tachycardia, you know, sort of racing heart rate, shaking, even um, neurological conditions. If you're someone who's an opiate user and you stop using, you'll experience very unpleasant, although interestingly not life-threatening withdrawal symptoms like uh, diarrhea and weakness and pain and sweating and all sorts of horrible stuff that you see in movies. Um, rehab facilities, if they're well run, will provide medications and nursing support to help you um, get through those unpleasant uh, days and weeks uh, because those unpleasant feelings might otherwise encourage you to go back to using your drugs. Um, a well run rehab facility will also provide counseling, which will help you begin to make plans for how to live as someone who isn't using drugs or is using them in a more controlled and, care- and safe way. And well, maybe all the, a well-run rehab facility will connect you with other services in your community, like psychologists and counselors who can work with you in the months and years to come. Um, so it's at best the beginning of the process. Uh, but what I think happens for some people, unfortunately, in, in the real world is they check in they are abstinent from drugs for a month or however long that they can afford to stay. And then they go out and go back to their community and relapse relatively quickly. The rates of relapse following a rehab are uh, terribly high in many cases, um, probably because those risk factors that lead people into abuse are still there. You know, if you return to your hometown 
um, and you still associate with your friends who still continue to use drugs or you have some of the same problems in your life like untreated depression or post-traumatic stress disorder uh, that might lead you to use drugs. If those things don't change, you're likely to go back to using, unfortunately. Um, so the, the, the image we see in movies and TV can be a little bit misleading. And I, I hear sometimes from family members of folks who have drug use problems, a sense of confusion. Like I, we sent our daughter to a treatment facility. It looked like everything was going to be okay, but then she came back and relapsed. And although that can be terribly hard for family members and friends, it's unfortunately to be expected because drug use problems tend to be recurrent over time. Uh, they can get better with good treatment. In many cases they do, but it's again that, that myth or that misconception of, of drug use stopping after treatment. Like, you know, if you broke your leg and you got it properly treated, now your leg's not broken anymore. It's more or less the way it was before. Drug use problems are better thought of like diabetes or some sort of chronic health condition, which can be managed over time with ongoing treatment. So kind of related to that, it sounds like that's some support for the disease model, maybe, that comes from 12-step, or are there differences? It's really interesting. Um, uh, I think historically, uh, different groups like the 12-step group, which is a generic, a somewhat generic term to refer to groups like Alcoholics Anonymous and similar organizations, community support volunteer groups, um, some public health advocacy groups like the National Alliance for Mental Illness, variety of different groups have really pushed the disease model of addiction in part because it tends to destigmatize the condition. For much of human history, we've thought of drug use problems as a moral a moral failing. You're, you're a drunk, you're an opiate addict because you're a bad person or you're sinful or you're weak or, or so on. And unfortunately, those ideas persist even to today. Um, the disease model, I think, is in some respects a response to that. We argue no, you know, this person isn't weak or sinful. He or she just has a disease, much as we don't tend to blame, although I'm sure sometimes people do, we don't tend to blame the person with diabetes for having diabetes or the person with asthma for having asthma. We don't tend to blame the person, we try not to blame the person who is addicted to methamphetamine for this disease. The problem with the disease model is I, I think we, we see it as the wrong type of disease. We see it as the type of disease that's easily cured, and it isn't. It's probably the type of disease which is at best managed over time. So, um, you know, again, it's not, a, it's not an acute infection. It's rather a chronic condition. That's the type of disease we, we should probably be thinking of when we think of alcoholism or drug dependence as, as a disease, using that disease model. So kind of uh, getting on your theme of um, how it's not simple or anything like that. So the one thing that's interesting that some people have used to counter the disease model is the idea that people, some people do drink moderately, right? They don't all need to abstain. And so could you maybe talk a little bit about that? Because that's sometimes brought up as a myth, too. Yeah, I, I think a, a myth or, or a misconception about drug treatment is that the treatment goal is always and, and inevitably abstinence. Um, so if you're someone who, who smokes, you should your goal should be to not smoke. Or if you're someone who uses methamphetamine, it should be to not use methamphetamine. Uh, and in some cases, that's a really good treatment goal. So those two examples, um, smoking cigarettes is very unhealthy for your body. And it's entirely reasonable to seek to be abstinent from using uh, tobacco products. Uh, methamphetamine uh, can be acutely toxic. You can you can have you can die from overdosing on it. It can also lead to all sorts of health problems over the long term. So it makes a lot of sense to try to uh, maintain abstinence. Um, but there are other drugs where that might not be the only option. So in the case of alcohol, which you're you're referring to, many people do well uh, seeking total abstinence from alcohol. Again, I have friends and colleagues who who've pursued that path and have done well. Um, but moderate drinking can, for some people, also be a, a good treatment goal. So if, if someone is using alcohol in a kind of a reckless fashion, they're frequently drinking more than they want to, or they're suffering negative consequences of their use, the types of things which might lead to a diagnosis of alcohol abuse, or if they're using so much that when they try to stop using, they have withdrawal symptoms, the type of thing that might lead us to make a diagnosis of alcohol dependence. It's possible that that person could cut back their drinking to a relatively more manageable level and avoid those problems and maintain that more manageable level over time. 
Um, to be clear, that's not going to work for everyone. And when it does work, it's usually with a lot of help and support from a well-trained uh, group of professionals. But it's, it's a goal that can work for some folks and maybe more maintainable. Is that a word? Maintainable? Oh, we know what you mean. Maintainable. <laughs> or it's a word now. Maintainable over time than abstinence. Um, so I, I think that's kind of what you're getting at. Yeah. And speaking of which, so I actually mentioned this on the show previously. Um, Yesenia, one of our friends and mm -hmm. colleagues who studies smoking cessation, was frustrated that sometimes using a nicotine patch is viewed as not really quitting. Mm -hmm. And so maybe it's worth talking as part of like the treatment program. You talked about how rehab can be the first step, but how complete abstinence from any drug might not be um, kind of the first treatment step. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, some of this, I think, emerges from, from the 12-step movement, which is has been very, um, has really dominated a lot of thinking about treatment for drug use problems in America, at least for much of the 20th century. Um, that's a movement which by and large has had the goal of abstinence. So people who are, who are uh, enrolled in 12-step programs in a treatment facility or people who attend Alcoholics Anonymous meetings in their community are um, so often self-selecting into a group that has the goal of not using the drug that they're that they're have tr having trouble with, like alcohol, and maybe just not using drugs at all. You know, there's some people who are in 12-step programs who want to stop using all drugs, you know, full stop. And to be clear, again, you know, for for some of those folks, that's a fine choice, and and we wish them support in pursuing it. But for many people, it's just not going to be very effective. So someone trying to stop using tobacco products will have a much higher chance of being successful over time if he or she uses nicotine replacement, either from a patch or a gum or an inhaler, which nicotine for, you know, at appropriate doses for a healthy person is not particularly dangerous to the body. It's the tar and other products in tobacco smoke that are, can, are carcinogenic. Um, that person can use nicotine replacement, will be more successful at avoiding uh, using tobacco products, and may over time be able to taper off the nicotine uh, dosing. Um, although that said, I, I've had colleagues in the past who've maintained nicotine replacement for just years. I, mm -hmm. I used to know a psychiatrist who <clears throat> drank Diet Pepsi and chewed nicotine gum before going on rounds every morning. And I asked him how long it had been since he'd last smoked, and it had been something like 20 years. And he said, but nicotine is pretty safe, and, and, uh, and this helps me not go back to smoking. An even better example is when we look at opiates and opioids. These are drugs which are either directly or synthetically related to opium. And they're, of course, this very powerful class of drugs which can numb pain, but can also lead to powerful feelings of high and can be very addictive. Uh, folks who are addicted to those drugs or dependent on those drugs have a much, much, much underscore, you know, better chance of maintaining uh, sort of a healthy life if they're using a replacement drug like methadone or buprenorphine, which essentially is an opiate. You know, methadone is chemically related to heroin, but it can be prescribed by a doctor. It can be provided by a nurse at a clinic in a dose that is safe, in a form that is not adulterated with other chemicals, in a format that is legal and doesn't involve uh, criminal activity. And someone can take a daily dose of methadone essentially for the rest of their life so as to avoid going into withdrawal and experiencing the negative symptoms that might lead them back into using street drugs. Um, and in a sense, they're addicted to methadone, but they're able to live a healthy life and go to their work and have time with their family and live pretty normally. Um, again, the analogy isn't perfect, but it, to me, it's reminiscent of someone who takes you know, insulin doses for management of diabetes. We, we don't tend to think of that person as addicted to insulin, but there's a drug that they need to take over time to manage their health. And if they take that drug, they do quite well. Um, so again, methadone's the classic example. Uh, methadone treatment's been around since the 70s. Um, more recently, there are drugs like buprenorphine, which is just a, a similar type of drug, which can be taken daily to manage withdrawal symptoms, to avoid leading the person to experience really uh, sort of sickness from stopping their drug use so that they're less likely to go back to using heroin or, or, or Oxycontin or whatever they were having trouble with. So this is the idea that harm reduction is another pathway besides total abstinence from any of the drug. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Uh, harm reduction is this kind of broad idea or, or, or theory or kind of a viewpoint really is, uh, on drug use that, that says 
we need to focus on the consequences of the drug use more than the drug use itself. Um, if we're, you know, if we're worried about drugs, we should see what's going wrong in the person's life and how can we mitigate those wrongs. So rather than trying to get someone to stop using drugs because drugs are bad, we should try to get someone to use drugs in a way that is safe. And maybe that's uh, moderate alcohol use, or maybe that's nicotine replacement, or maybe that's methadone treatment so that the person can live a, a healthy life. Um, even though technically speaking, of course, they're using a drug. They're just not using heroin bought illegally and dangerously and taken in an unsafe dose or so on. Yeah, and it does, my guess is that that seems very linked to misconceptions about, like you, you started off saying with the nature of substance use problems. And of course, um, especially with issues with the opioid use in the United States, that's a big concern right now. So it seems like understanding the nature of it, how to manage it, and the different treatment options are especially key for preventing things like overdose and things that have recently raised alarm for many people. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it, it's understandable that people who are maybe not familiar with drug use problems, that you know, they're lucky enough to not have those problems themselves or, or maybe not know someone closely who has these problems. Um, it can be alarming to think about the idea of giving someone drugs as a part of their treatment to keep them off of other drugs. Mm -hmm. um, but the research is pretty clear and the clinical uh, training is pretty clear that uh, things like replacement therapies for opioids or you know replacement therapies for nicotine can be very uh, can be done safely at relatively low cost as compared to the cost associated with people relapsing and going to jail if they're doing criminal activities and can be on the whole safer and harm reducing um, so I think that's you know personally on my soapbox I think that's what we ought to do other some other countries like Canada France, uh, Portugal are much more uh, sort of ahead of us, I think, in terms of providing those types of treatments. It's not impossible, but relatively hard to get those treatments in America. All right. Uh, moving on to our next and, and maybe last myth of today's episode is this idea that marijuana really serves as a gateway drug to other um, using other, I don't know, quote unquote, harder drugs. Yeah, yeah this is a really fascinating one. I mean, I think in a way, I think all drugs are fascinating or the stories around drugs are, are probably all fascinating. <clears throat> but the idea of marijuana as a gateway drug is that although marijuana itself might not be particularly harmful to you, it's harmful in the sense that it leads you to start using cocaine or heroin or other more, as, as Brandon, as you say, hard drugs. And it's an idea that dates way back to uh, the 30s, uh, during a time in which <clears throat> the federal government was expanding its control over various types of drugs, including marijuana. And at that time, um, the main architect of that program was a fellow named Harry Anslinger. He had formerly been the director of the uh, Federal Bureau of Prohibition, Prohibition of Alcohol during the 20s. Uh, after Prohibition was repealed, uh, he was motivated to maintain his, his agency, you know, maintain his staff, and lobbied Congress to make marijuana illegal. It was a drug which at the time was not illegal and, and was used by a lot of different people in various forms. It was smoked by people, uh, obviously. It was also used uh, a lot in various pharmaceuticals that you could purchase, you know, soothing syrups for coughs and things like that. Um, and there wasn't, in the early part of the 20th century, much of a sense that marijuana was particularly dangerous, especially not as compared to drugs like cocaine and heroin and other drugs. Um, but Anslinger and other folks argued that, gosh, this is a really dangerous drug. We really ought to, we need to find a reason for it to be dangerous. And the two things they came up with was, one, it can be a gateway to using other drugs. And two, it's used by people who are minorities. It was, uh, you know, it was, uh, they created the public perception that it was used by people who are undesirable or criminal, folks who might be, uh, you know, African-American or Mexican immigrants. There was an enormous amount of really terrible racism and classism tied up in uh, the sort of the illegalization of marijuana. Um, and it was aided by, at the time, some of the famous propaganda films uh, about marijuana, like Reefer Madness um, or Marijuana Plant with Its Roots in Hell, you know, some of which you can find on, on YouTube, I'm sure, these days. Anyway, that idea of marijuana as this inevitable uh, step that inevitably leads you to using other drugs persisted uh, up through, unfortunately, through modern times, despite a lot of research that suggested it's just not really the case. Um, 
you know, we talked about this a little bit before recording, but the analogy that I sometimes use with students is uh, the analogy of people who ride motorcycles. If you think about someone who rides motorcycles, you talk to people who do, all of those folks rode bicycles when they were kids. But you probably wouldn't say that the bicycle is like a gateway to riding motorcycles because, of course, many, many more people who ride bicycles, for whatever reason, just never go on to ride motorcycles. Um, so it's a bit of a, a mistaken focus on just those people who end up using harder drugs. Yeah, if you find people who use heroin, many of them, most of them, will have also used marijuana at some time previously in their lives. But if you find people who use marijuana, most of them don't go on to use any other drugs. Um, so it's, it's, it's a problematic idea and one that's used, unfortunately, to prop up the illegalization of marijuana. And it, even nowadays, when um, we're at a point in our history when uh, obviously many of the states, I think at last count 20, have either um, medicalized or decriminalized marijuana, um, the national sort of attitude towards marijuana has shifted quite a lot in the last decade or so. There are people who are opposed to the decriminalization of marijuana. Um, and there are some good reasons to be opposed to it. I mean, you can have a healthy debate about that, but it's unfortunate that even nowadays in the 21st century, you still hear people saying, yeah, marijuana, it's not that bad, but it leads you to use other drugs. And that's, again, for some people that will sort of be true. I mean, you could probably find people who use other drugs and they will say to you, gosh, I think it maybe started when I used marijuana as a young person. And to be clear, there are all sorts of reasons why young people shouldn't use marijuana or any other drugs for that matter. They can, you know, they're not safely prescribed and monitored. Um, but it's just not, it's not generally the case that people who use marijuana inevitably go on to use other drugs. In fact, in almost all cases, they don't. Awesome. Anything else that you want to mention that we didn't get to? Because um, that kind of wraps up the four myths that we had. Yes, it wraps up the, the four myths. Um, no, and many uh, myths that were subsets and, of the main myths. Yeah, yeah it was no, awesome. I, I, mm -hmm. uh, no, I think we've covered a lot of ground here. Um, you know, I, one thing that we <coughs> could talk about at some point in the future, if you want, is the way in which these myths pop up in movies and TV. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we talked about that a little bit with regards to Jessica Jones and some of the characters in Breaking Bad. But I think it's interesting to to think about the way drugs appear in stories to for reasons of advancing a narrative, mm -hmm. or showing that a character is troubled because he's drinking, or showing that a character is, is crazy because he's using cocaine, mm -hmm. or, or showing that a character is like a far-out dippy guy because he's using psychedelics. Um, I can't at the moment think of a ton of good examples, but maybe you guys can, or if people who listen to the podcast want to uh, send in notes to you guys, that might be worth talking about in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you want. Sure. No, I, yeah, I think that's a great idea. I, I was thinking of a couple throughout it, like Dr. House is a great mm -hmm. example of someone who struggles um, <clears throat> with a Vicodin um, addiction, and, and there's tons of interesting examples like that. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that I think that's a great idea. And his, it was, began to monitor or to to alleviate pain that he was having chronic mm -hmm. pain mm -hmm. but turns into a larger problem mm -hmm. clearly where he's exhibiting signs of addiction yeah it's it's funny it's been a long time since i've watched that show and <clears throat> of course it's now I, it's finished its run uh, probably many years ago but part of the thing i liked about that show was the way in which um his motivation for use was uh, what I guess a behavioral psychologist would call negative reinforcement. He was motivated principally to use drugs to avoid the negative consequences, the punishing feelings that would happen when he stopped, uh, which is not uncommon for people who use drugs, especially opiates. You know, someone might begin using uh, opiates because they have an injury and they've been prescribed them by their doctor, or they might begin using opiates because they know that they can be misused in a way to produce a high. But over time, once you've used them for a while, uh, when you stop using them, you feel really sick. Um, this withdrawal syndrome that happens with opiates is roughly the opposite of the active effects of the drugs. So when someone's on opiates, they feel a sense of pleasure and ease. They feel very little pain. Uh, they feel sleepy and relaxed. They feel warm. <clears throat> when they're off opiates, they feel edgy, anxious, they can't sleep, they feel cold and chilly and shiver and shake. It's unpleasant, and the awareness of those unpleasant feelings, the pain that accompanies those unpleasant feelings, is a powerful motivator to go back to using drugs. I think you saw that mm -hmm. in-house. What I didn't like so much about that series was the way that, at least in the time that I watched it and that we used to mm -hmm. watch it, 
Um, I don't think he ever got treatment. And I think he does, show... but I think it was after we stopped watching it. I think it's around mm-hmm. season five, maybe. He does for a while actually oh, um, okay. get treatment and stop using the Vicodin, but then inevitably does return to using mm-hmm. it again. Well, I mean, I suppose that's you know that part as unfortunate as it is to see that happen is fairly accurate. Mm-hmm. In so much as people who become addicted or dependent to drugs do tend to relapse over time, and that's not a, that's not something to take lightly. But it is fairly accurate. Uh, at least in the seasons that I watched, I felt like the show could have done a bit more to you know, hire a consultant to help them write storylines that involved him seeing treatment options uh, that were, were accurate. Um, Especially but, because they did some mental health advocacy, some raising money and funds. They sold shirts that benefited mental health yeah, around they, they did some work around suicide prevention because mm-hmm. one of their characters was written out of the script by for, for, yeah. by suicide. Um, so, yeah, um, you know, this is probably true in, in many stories. Uh, drugs are probably hard to write about in a way that's compelling. Uh, not that they're not interesting or for the people who struggle with drug use problems that of course are very they're very important and powerful stories on a personal level but i imagine as a writer you have to kind of create narrative arcs you know stories of of you know sort of conflict and resolution or or downfalls and 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 upswings um and i think unfortunately what you see sometimes in, a, in an effort to write those stories is these sort of oversimplified visions of what is as we've discussed kind of a complicated uh, set of behaviors in, in the real world. I was trying to think about superheroes particularly. We mess, m- mentioned Jessica Jones, but Batman also in Batman versus Superman appears to mm-hmm. be having a drinking problem. They don't really go that much into it. They just kind of have a scene where he has a bunch of bottles around him, right? And Alfred makes like hints that yeah. he's trying to drink all of the wine that or something. That the cellar will be empty. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking of Hancock, too. That's mm-hmm. another... I don't know if either of you saw that movie. Mm-hmm. It's about a superhero who's... I struggles a lot with addiction and is very down on, on his luck. And then it sort of it reminded me, Keith, you were talking about this. He kind of just has this point where his life just turns around, though, and he becomes a hero mm-hmm. again. And But it it was... I, I haven't seen it in a long time. Will Smith is the oh. main character. So I would like to rewatch that and think about that now, but... In the in the Bat, I mean, obviously, Brandon, you're the authority on Batman here. For for those listening, he's this literally wearing a Batman T-shirt, <laughs> one of many that he owns. I'm sure. So in the comic books, are there are there versions of the Batman story in which you know he struggles with drinking, or he's drinking too much, or using other drugs? Um, there's only one that really comes to mind, and it actually the scene that Katie just described actually is borrowed directly from the comics. In um, the Dark Knight Returns, mm-hmm. there's a very similar scene where Batman um, is drinking a lot, and Alfred makes that same exact line, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think for the most part, Batman's depicted as not drinking at all, and that's also sort of uh, depicted in the Dark Knight Returns, where he's having this meeting with Jim Gordon, and Jim Gordon talks about how Bruce Wayne fooled him all these years because he always just drank ginger ale and tricked everyone that it was champagne, and that's so that was sort mm-hmm. of his thing. But no, I don't think that... He's traditionally struggled, though, with any substance use. You know, we talked about this a little bit the other day, uh, Katie and I, but it's my sense that sometimes in, in books and in TV shows and movies and even video games, alcohol use is often uh, deployed as this way of indicating that someone's living a hard life. It, it's very much, I think, kind of a trope or a staple of, like, noir-themed fiction. I mean, it's it's maybe... Well, a, now that you mentioned that, Logan also is drinking. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so Logan would be a, a good example. And and it's it's not to say that this, this can't be done or shouldn't be done. I think in the case of Logan, it makes sense, for, in my understanding of his character and the sort of the storyline of that movie, that, that he is... He has a drinking problem. His, um, is it Caliban? The mm-hmm. the uh, the other mutants sort of comments on him drinking too much and how that's a problem. I think they sort of handle it fairly well in that he um, he's drinking heavily and he seems to suffer some of the consequences of this, mm-hmm. or at least people around him notice it. Um, what's maybe less satisfying for me are other shows where drink is just meant to signify that someone's working on some hard stuff emotionally. Mm-hmm. And Katie, again, Katie and I talked about this, and I liked the movie Goodwill Hunting a lot. And so I don't mean to criticize it too much, but the one scene that sticks out in my mind is uh, the scene in which the Robin Williams character has had this confrontation with Will Hunting, a Matt Damon character, and there's a shot of him sitting at a table with sort of a half-empty bottle of whiskey. And then the next day, or the next time he and Will meet, um, they have a breakthrough in terms of their relationship. 
again, that could that could happen in real life, and maybe it has happened to people. But what you don't see is the Robin Williams character really hung over the next day and irritable because he's hung over and unable to connect as well as he might otherwise. Um, that scene, I think, is meant to show that he's struggling, and that's okay. But it seems it seems like kind of a shorthand uh, for something that's more complicated in terms of his character and a little bit inaccurate in terms of the way alcohol for most people really works. Mm-hmm. You stay up all night drinking whiskey, you're not going to be at your best to hang out with right. anyone or, or do psychotherapy the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, for those of you who are therapists out there, don't stay up all night drinking whiskey. Yeah, that's a good tip. That's a good tip. I don't know if that's what we need to close on, but that's a little <laughs> word of wisdom. I think, Brandon, don't you do like words of wisdom at the end? I do. Don't stay up all night drinking whiskey. I don't have to this episode. Uh, you've got to cover for me, Keith, so thank you very much. <laughs> I was just going to drop one quick sure. additional pearl of wisdom uh, okay. on top of not staying up all night to drink whiskey before doing psychotherapy the next day, which is just related as we sort of close off the myth series, which I have a feeling that we'll probably return to at some point, but it's been pretty popular. People seem to like it. But I just want to talk about comic books again, so no, just kidding. Um, is just to, uh, pretty much every myth that we've talked about, uh, ranging from brain myths to bowling myths, mental health myths, substance use myths. Did I miss any myths? Did you say forensic? Forensic myths, thank you, yes. Uh, pretty much every myth that we've talked about impacts people in some one way or another, just through existing. So my pearl of wisdom is almost a call to action in some ways, which is just to... In everyday life, uh, when you pop up or encounter, when these myths pop up or you encounter them, to try to challenge them um, politely. Uh, you don't have to be in people's face about it, but when you run into these myths, there's nothing wrong with maybe just talking about what is the reality and what do we know about it. And it, it can make a difference. It can change the situation for people. It can make a difference in reducing the impact, uh, often negative, almost exclusively negative in the terms of myths we've talked about, um, that these myths have. So. Yeah, that's a great program. Okay, I agree. Any other closing thoughts before we wrap up? No, no. thank you very much for oh, being thanks, our guys. guest I, today. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so great to have you. All right, folks, thank you so much for listening in. If you have any questions or any uh, other interesting characters who maybe struggle, um, send them in, tweet them at us. Mm-hmm. And as always, thanks so much for listening in. And check out the other great shows on the Geek Therapy Podcast Network. And if you like what you hear from us, we we love those nice reviews and those nice tweets. They, they just make my day every time. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> All right, folks, thank you so much. And, well... You'll hear us later. <laughs>